Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. I can't believe we've already reached the end of season 11, but fear not, we'll be back in the winter after a short break to explore how we can reimagine the human story and trajectory in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash in conversation. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this final episode of the season. In today's conversation, I speak with Antonio Grassa. Head of Research and Development at Sogrape Vinos SA, a family-run vineyard and business founded on the principles of circularity, renovation and transformation. Secretary for the Sustainable Development and Climate Change Expert Group of the International Organization for Vine and Wine in Paris, Antonio has an MSc in Oniology and leads masterclasses and lectures for young professionals at universities all around the world. As well as sitting on the executive committee of the Onoviti International Network, Antonio assisted Comité des Entreprises Européennes de Vin in the creation of the first European research agenda for the wine industry, which was published as a position paper in 2016. He serves as expert by technical commissions of the Spanish Wine Federation, Association of Wines and Spirits of Portugal, and Association of Port Wine Companies, and also sits as tasting judge for high-profile international wine competitions, such as the International Wine Challenge in London and Mundus Vini in Neustadt. From 2003 to 2014, Antonio served in the board of the Association for the Development of Duro Viticulture, and in 2009, he co-founded the Portuguese Association for Grapevine Diversity and was on its board of directors until 2021. Having published many scientific works over the course of his career, Antonio is currently focusing on agroecology, biodiversity, digital transition, climate change adaptation, resilience and system dynamics of the food and wine value chain. Beyond his professional interests, he's also a humanist and a firm believer in the founding principles of the European Union, and he uses his free time to raise awareness to the fundamental role played by wine in civilizations and to the ethnic and cultural heritage of Portuguese explorations still surviving around the world. I first met Antonio at a very special gathering, hiking a short stretch of the Camino de Santiago in northern Spain, and I was so struck by his presence, his thoughtfulness and passion for the living world that I had to invite him onto the podcast. Our conversation explores a whole array of intertwining themes and ideas, and I hope that our exploration inspires you to reconnect more deeply into the food, the place and the biodiversity of where you live. Okay, Antonio, happy to be talking with you. How are you right now? Great to be here, Natalie. Um, I'm fine, thank you. A bit tired because uh, it's harvest time, but uh, comes with the job. Uh, overall, everything's going uh, well and great. Thank you. I'm excited to hear that. And um, I'd love to hear more about Harvest Time in a moment. But to kick off, as I always like to do in this conversation, I'd love to start by asking you what you think or what you imagine is going on in the global human psyche right now. If we can play with that question. Well, I dreaded that question <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I work with science. And of course, uh, to, to answer a question like that, um, I would have to do some, some, some survey. The scientific answer to your question is I have no way of knowing. <laughs> so what I could do is a thought experiment, okay. however, applying the scientific method. How, how would I go about it? So I would observe and I can do that. That would be a sample um, that would be biased by the people I can see. And then I would formulate a hypothesis from these observations that I would test through an uh, an adequate experimental uh, design and then analyze the data with some sound statistics. It sounds very boring, (laughs) but that's how you you actually get closer to the truth. Mm. Um, The thing is, the hypothesis that I would advance based on my observations uh, would be if this uh, main 
feeling in the global human psyche isn't one of full and utter bewilderment. You know, uh, I see people really baffled and uh, at a loss when facing what is happening. They don't, they don't understand. They don't know why things are happening that way as fast as they are. And I think if we would do um, a statistic, if we could do a statistics of what is the most prevalent word in the mind of people across uh, the, 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 the human population, I'm pretty sure we'd probably have the F word pretty high up there. You know? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, people are, what the, yeah. you know, it's a... Well, I mean, uh, war in the 21st century in Europe, uh, what what's going on? Uh, famine, um, uh, now uh, um, artificial intelligence, the sheer speed of things. Uh, are we voting for these people? Mm. What, what's going on? I mean, uh, uh, um, I, I, think, I think there is an incredible amount of bewilderment as to how did we get here? Yeah. Why are we in this situation? This is exactly everything we weren't supposed to do. And we knew about it. Mm. Take climate change. We know about climate change for a good 50 years. The first person who um, officially spoke to the US Congress um, about climate change as a scientist was Carl Sagan mm -hmm. back yeah. in the 1970s. It's one, it was one of the most reputed scientists what have we done? We voted for people who said climate change didn't exist. Yeah. We put them in office. So what is going on? I think bewilderment would be probably the, the, the most prevalent uh, thought on, on people's minds, but um, we would have to apply the scientific method to be yeah. sure. <laughs> I think that's a good thought experiment. Um, I've just started reading uh, well overdue, and it's been on my list for over a few years now, I'm embarrassed to say, but Donella Meadows' Thinking in Systems book, which yeah. is just phenomenal. And one of the things when encountering such entangled problems, like why do we vote these people in? Why have we not acted in a meaningful way, given that we've had this information for at least the last 50 years? And thinking about all of the different components, relationships, dynamics that would have to be repurposed or changed in order to achieve the outcomes that we want, which is, you know, a rich, biodiverse, uh, self-sustaining, yeah. abundant planet, which we have de facto, but we're just, you know, mm -hmm. impoverishing through our actions yeah. and inaction, um, thinking about how we can repurpose the systems that are in place now towards that end. But that requires such change that I think also the scale of the challenge is one of the things that's so overwhelming. At least I feel it to mm. be that way. And when I've spoken to others, it's kind of you know, what, what can I possibly do? Yeah, I, I think, too, that there is also a, a great lack of understanding of how things work. Mm. Uh, if you think about the whole population, um, a lot of people do not really understand what an ecosystem is, how it, how it works. Uh, why is biodiversity important? I mean, they feel good if you see, they see a lot of plants and animals, beautiful flowers, <laughs> and nice big trees. That makes you feel uh, well. That's, that's for true. But uh, just how uh, how much worse would you feel if you didn't have them? You probably will only find out when you lose them. Yeah. So this type of insidious threats, uh, they they have this tendency to creep in uh, into into our uh, uh, livelihoods by our own doing because we really do not understand how they will impact us until they do. Yeah. And the same goes for climate change, for example. We know that we don't want climate change, mm. but are we willing to lose a part of our comfort, of the comfort in our lives, in order to avoid the, the, the impact of climate change? Mm. I mean, maybe now people are starting to think, because we are seeing the impact of climate change, still at a very mild uh, level of what it will most likely become, but already enough for people to start thinking, well, maybe I should turn my my heating down during yeah. winter a couple of degrees. Yeah. You know? The problem is it is too late for that. 
it is too late for that. Mm. We are past an, irrever- uh, an irreversible point where in, in, our, uh, in our generation and probably the next two generations, uh, we won't, no, no one will experience the same type of stable climate I have experienced when I was a teenager. Yeah, I mean, that's quite heartbreaking. I remember growing up, and I know this is connected to, to age and youthfulness, you know, when you're in your teens, in your 20s, you've got the rest of your life, if you're lucky, rolling out in front of you, mm. depending on your context and privilege and all sorts of factors. But there is this sort of youthful optimism and excitement about the future. Absolutely. And now when I think about the future, and when I ask people about how they feel about it, there's a mix of feelings, including dread. And I think that's that's that awful sensation that we thought we had, you know, dispatched to the past um, in certain countries. And so let's talk a bit about your work and what led you down the path where you're you're at the intersection of regeneration, biodiversity, health, viticulture. You're talking about harvest. Let's talk about what that is. Tell us a bit about what you do and how you got there. Yeah. So I uh, work as head of research and development uh, for a wine company uh, based in Portugal, but also operating in other countries, in Spain, in South America, in New Zealand. So a bit of a a global footprint. It is a family-owned company, which is an interesting framework uh, where to be. Because as a, as a family-owned company, there is a focus on the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, probably that's why they, they created a research department or asked me to create the research department and do research. Uh, because long term is always present in the, in the management priorities here. How did I come to do what I do? Well, I, I've um, I've had since a very early age uh, a great attraction to everything natural. Mm-hmm. Nature was very attractive because it was it was huge, it was diverse, it was beautiful, and wine was there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family um, had uh, people who worked in the wine business, so when we got together, well. This is a southern country, so we we got together and we still get together at Sundays um, around the family table. And uh, there would always be stories about uh, wine. Like, for example, in this moment of the year, there would always be stories about harvest. If it was raining or if it was a dry heat wave, the grapes were sweet or not sweet or unripened or there was rot. I mean, plenty of stories. And I grew up uh, in that environment. But... um, in the beginning, I wasn't thinking I would become uh, uh, someone working in the business. Mm-hmm. I liked it. I liked the storytelling. I liked everything. But um, I was going elsewhere. I, well, my, my early uh, goal was to become a research biologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't play out at first. And uh, by a, a, a number of, um, of events, I found myself uh, in the university um, looking at a recently created uh, degree in enology, which is which is wine science, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Peering through the syllabus, I realized, whoa, there's a lot of research here in biology, so why not? <laughs> and I, I just jumped in. So Amazing. cutting a long story short, I found myself at 21 uh, working, um, well, actually in this company. Uh, this was the, wow. the, the first and only company I have ever worked with. Um, and for the, about 15 years, I was making wine. That was my job. Uh, I, I made port and I made uh, reds and whites from the Douro Valley in, uh, in Portugal. Um, and because I have always been a person very much looking into doing experiments, mm. uh, studying, researching, reading research and so on. Uh, at the point when the company decided they, re- they needed a research department, they asked me to, um, to set it up and, and here I am. <laughs> I must say one other thing, which is, and that is very personal to, to me, is that um, at, in those days when I was trying to think, what do I want to specialize myself in? I couldn't make up my mind. I, I, I couldn't let go. I mean, I, I like too many things, and wine is um, is a perfect uh, is a perfect and universal integrator. It's like a, a big confluence of uh, different uh, uh, sciences, different topics. Mm. Everything fun- finds an application in wine. So it became a proxy for me to specialize in everything. And I love that you've actually got a root in. I was talking with a friend of mine, Philippe Matus wonderful guy and he does lots of stuff around branding I mean that does him a disservice but he's also a philosopher and one of the things that we talk about quite a bit is how 
when it comes to branding, it's really important to be able to stick to one thing and, and that be your kind of banner. Yep. And I was like, yeah, but there's got to be a ways to sort of have the one line or one topic banner that lets you do all of these other things, which is exactly what you've just described. Yeah. So when we're thinking about wine, I know that in southern countries, like in Portugal or Spain, where I am now, um, or Gibraltar, where my dad's from, you know, there's, there's quite a specific cultural connection and relationship with wine. That's, that's different to perhaps in Nordic countries or in the UK where I was born. And so can you talk a little bit about this kind of access point of wine as this sensual, integrated, palatable way into talking about our relationship with nature, with biodiversity, and perhaps how that translates into the work that you do on the vineyards? Yeah, 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 very much. Yes, of course, I mean, um, grapevines, vineyards and wine uh, they are widespread uh, in our in our territory i mean in, as you said in spain in portugal italy southern france uh, over on the mediterranean um, it's part of our everyday life it's hard to to to, to uh, walk in in nature here and not find a grapevine sprouting somewhere and it's hard to drive across the country for more than two miles without seeing a vineyard. Yeah. So that is something that is very, very, very present. So much present as uh, wine is in our food. Uh, so in, in our society, wine is not uh, something that you go out of your way to having. It's something that is there <laughs> present all, at all times. It's part of your household. It's part of your kitchen. It's part of your uh, dining table. Um, but then... It creates this connection between the taste and the place because mm. we know that wines taste differently from place to place. If I have um, a wine from, say, the Douro or, for, or, or from Alentejo in, in, in southern Portugal, they will taste differently from one another and both will taste different from a wine from Bordeaux or from Rioja. So this connection between the, the taste of um, of the product and and the place where it comes from uh, is very evocative it mm -hmm. provides uh, images sensory images it provides memories uh, it's like you are drinking the landscape mm. it's like you are drinking the place where you are and um, it brings your experience about being in a place into your memory realm. And because there's a lot of uh, smell involved in that, because smell is our most primitive sense and it's the least processed of our senses by the brain, mm -hmm. a lot less than sight, for example, it becomes almost something that happens instinctively. You don't have mm -hmm. to make an effort. It's not like you are trying to see when you sniff at the glass um, what are the notes that you can find to describe the place where it comes from. That's, it's not what I'm talking about. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, you, you, you are in the place, you experience the place, and you drink the wine. And without any effort, you get a memory of the place from the wine. So that coupled with the fact that it brings people together, the fact that people usually get together either at the, the dining table or uh, at any other place to enjoy wine. And most of the time in the Mediterranean, always with food, not on its own. Hmm. It creates this integration. And integration develops belonging. And I believe belonging, it's something very human, isn't it? I mean, we crave for belonging. Totally. And it's curious because I think one of the things that I've noted in Gen Z, I mean, this is a, obviously a generalisation, but there do seem to be certain trends, is that a lot of younger folks and people that I know, perhaps more in the millennial bracket, are now abstaining from alcohol as a category. And I think precisely because it has become so disconnected from the wider I guess, gastronomic experience, the sense that yeah. these things, it's, it's like anything. I think we tend to run into problems when we disconnect integrated systems and the parts become alienated from one another. Absolutely. I'm not saying that everyone should drink wine, but like, yeah. there's just something about it that is missing, that if you've been paying attention to like the news in the States and like human labs and all these people going, cut this out, do that, do that. And I'm thinking, but where's 
It's a personal take. Where's the soul in in just cutting everything out? What about a life well lived? And you mentioned belonging, and there's a sense of connection with the landscape. I don't know. It, it seems like an extreme and sort of verging on the puritanical from my perspective, when actually I think we've misunderstood the connections that exist somehow. I don't know. There's there's something in that that, that really piques my curiosity. The problem, the problem is when you equate use with abuse. Of course, abuse yeah. is yeah. always bad. And abuse of any type of alcoholic uh, uh, drink. Or of food. Is, like, or of, I was getting there. You know, I mean, I have a penchant for chocolate. It's a disaster. Abuse from any type of alcoholic drink, of course, is something we abhor uh, yeah, uh, yeah. As, as, um, as a sector, as a company, and me prof- uh, as a professional uh, as well. Mm-hmm. That's not what uh, um, alcoholic drinks were made for, mm. and that's especially not what wine is made for. Never to abuse. And abuse should be fought against uh, all the time. However, if you fight use as a way of fighting abuse, you are mm. probably promoting abuse. Yeah, it's kind of like cutting off the shadow side. Yeah, and you make it you make it something uh, you know um, something underground, something that is uncontrolled, invisible, and that's where abuse develops. Yeah. That has been proved. Uh, beyond any uh, any further needs in the 1930s in the United States with prohibition. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the use of anything um, uh, is conditioned to the effect that it that it has. If you are not being educated in the proper use of something, as you say, as you were saying, it's not just alcoholic drinks; it's anything. I mean, you mm. you can abuse of water. Mm. And the, the, the consequences are terrible. You drown. Okay. So you, you can abuse yeah, anything yeah. to the point that you get killed by it. Um, so uh, if you educate people on the right use of things, you will probably get them away from abuse. But if you prevent them from um, engaging uh, properly engaging uh, with whatever object of uh, of use uh, they, they they will engage, and then at a later moment where you, as a parent, for example, do not have the possibility of guiding the person, they will be totally unprepared on how to deal with it. And we see that happening a lot with alcoholic yeah. drinks, which is a, a, b- a big problem. These are young people who have not been have not had any prior contact or very little or sometimes even a um, um, bad prior contact with uh, with the alcoholic drinks uh, wine included and then at a later stage they find it they do not have to respond to anyone anymore <laughs> they are in the moment where social acceptance uh, is more important than anything else and they'll do anything to be socially accepted yeah. even harm their own health and I think everybody has a responsibility to deter that and to fight against that through education, through proper guide, guiding. It's interesting because as you're saying that, I'm also thinking about weaving it back into our relationship with nature and how we abuse all that's around us through disconnection. Yeah. Again, it's a sense of, yeah, I sure. think it's symptomatic of something much, much deeper and bigger. And, and that sense of not actually seeing the impact that we have when we misuse something so whether that's um you know battery farming or anything like that i mean it's all interconnected absolutely and we must think that um the progressive urbanization of our western populations has set masses of people away from nature uh and um you have you see them having a romanticized uh, romanticized view of nature that doesn't have any anything to do with um, with with reality. Um, there's even a kind of illogical sense yeah. that food comes from the supermarket or um, or from the shelf and and from or, or from a factory but it has nothing to do with nature. And so when they go to nature, when they go outside of the city, when they go to the rural space, to the countryside, um, they do not understand why are there tractors working there? 
Why are, are, the, are they not leaving nature alone? Why are they cultivating that space and not letting nature colonize, uh, colonize it? I mean, this is very romantic and, and, and beautiful, yeah. but um, we would starve. That is, that, is, that is the why. So is there a possibility of combining both things? <laughs> I firmly believe there is. We have 12,000 years in our past showing there was, because we must not uh, forget that what we are seeing in terms of uh, farming intensification is pretty much uh, starting after the Second World War. So it's like 80 years old. Okay. Prior to that, the way farming was done was a lot more in balance with the surrounding ecosystem. The problem was it was not mm. enough to feed people and we had famines in many places across the world that we don't have today. So how do we uh, square this? How do we bring the need to provide food with the need to preserve environment? Well, the answer seems to lie in conservation farming or as, uh, as it is being said in the more high-level discuss discussion forums, um, land-sharing approaches, meaning you conserve nature where you farm. You do not send nature away from your farm. You keep it there, managed, integrated, as again, integration is key here, and you benefit from nature services on your farming. Because that is something that happens if you keep wild shrubs from, from your region, uh, native to your region, you will have auxiliary organisms that actually will eat up hmm. the pests that ravages your vineyard. Okay, So if you put enough of these shrubs around your vineyard, you decrease a lot the need to use chemicals to control those, uh, those pests. The same goes with water conservation. The same goes with pollination for those crops that require pollination and so on and so on. Nutrient recycling, carbon uh, conservation, water purification, everything um, uh, uh, like that can be provided by nature as long as you let nature stay in the place you find. So what are some of the ways in which you're doing that with the vineyards that you guys have? What are some of the cutting edge approaches? <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, they are cutting edge, but they are not very sophisticated. The first thing is to learn what is there. And that can be a daunting uh, work because there can be so many things in there. Fortunately, this is where technology comes to our help and allows us to have a better idea of what exists in nature, what exists in the farm, how much the farm is moving away from nature or is, uh, on the opposite, coming closer to nature. We can do that by inventing the species we find there. And today, uh, we still have the classical methods of just going there and trying to identify visually everything you can see. Mm. We are doing that on some, on some places. But you also have more uh, sophisticated tools uh, like uh, environmental DNA analysis that will recover a sample of soil or a sample of air or a sample of water and pretty much identify all the DNA that is present there, which becomes a footprint of every organism, every plant, every animal that was on that place for the last uh, few days. That's extraordinary that that's possible. It's, it's amazing. It's and is amazing. that a recent thing? Is that something which... It's also daunting yes, yeah. <laughs> because suddenly, suddenly you find yourself with thousands of, um, of, of uh, species in your list and you, and you don't know how you're going to manage that, okay? Mm -hmm. So one other thing that we now we are doing and a lot of people are, uh, are doing across the world is identifying what, uh, what are the roles of each of these species mm -hmm. in the ecosystem. What do they do? Uh, many of them won't do nothing for, 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 for your farm, but many of others will do. And it's, it's important to understand and also to understand what are the relationship between them because some eat the others. Yes. Okay, so if you don't have the ones meant to be eaten, you also don't have the ones that would be yes. eating them. Okay, uh, okay. Let me give you a, a specific example. Yeah, uh, there are some places where a small leaf hopper, a small insect, um, 
will come and uh, puncture the leaf of the grapevine to drink uh, the sap. Okay, uh, that's not very nice because it will dry up the leaf. And if this happens before the grape is ripe, uh, it won't ripen because there will be no leaf to f- make photosynthesis and send sugar and color and flavors to the berry. Okay, so we are finding that this is increasing in in, in gravity in, in in severity this this type of um, of impacts from this insect and we came to realize that the reason why that is happening is that because of the intensification not really of viticulture but of agriculture overall hmm. um, the the natural spaces in areas that would have a combination of both uh, cultivated and natural areas, uh, that those natural areas are being reduced in order to increase farming space. And uh, these insects would prefer a lot more to be in some wild uh, shrubs that existed natively there, but because they do not have any other choice, they will turn to grapevines. So if we bring in again patches of natural uh, areas where the shrubs are, they will happily go back to their favorite um, plant and leave the grapevine alone. So this is one uh, one example of many of the things that we are doing in what has been called, I don't really like that term, but uh, uh, people s- s- sometimes call it rewilding mm-hmm. or renaturing mm-hmm. the, the space. I don't like the, the word because it conveys this image that you are taking the farm out and replacing with wilderness. That's not what we are doing. We are increasing the presence of natural plants and natural animals within the farm, inside the farm, together with with our cultivated plants, in our case, with our grapevines. So we have shrubs doing hedges around the vine blocks. We have cover crops in between the rows of grapevines. And so everything, as long as we know what we are doing in terms of the species that we are bringing in there, which have always to be local native species, because those are the ones that nature selected mm. to be there. And um, we cannot presume to do better than nature because nature did that over eons. And we have been here for a few a few minutes of the planet life. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but um, understanding is key. It's really uh, get, uh, uh, gaining knowledge, building knowledge, understand what is there, what they are doing, what are the relationships, allow us to understand what we should do to let nature work for us. Mm. And that is the, the big challenge we are, we are uh, taking now. So I'm thinking also about so some friends of mine who run a regenerative farm down in Murcia in La Junquera in, in southern Spain. Yeah. And one of the challenges that they've come up against, similarly to you, is how do you educate other folks who also have vineyards, or in their case, the surrounding farms, that these sometimes perhaps more traditional approaches that would have integrated management of native species within the system of the farm, that that's something that isn't backward looking in some ways, obviously it is, but it's progressive. Like, how do you change people's mindsets? Because that takes, I would imagine, quite some doing. It does, it does, and it, there is a, f- a factor of inertia oh, in there. Uh-huh. If you are telling to people um, who have not been trained scientifically that they should do things in one way because doing them that way is going to bring them a stable revenue, mm. for, and you say that to, the, to those people for 10, 20, 30 years, and then after 30 years you say, oh, wait, stop. Let's stop doing that and doing the re- the, the, the reverse. Mm. Uh, they won't take it easily, yeah. um, and it will take time. So um, in the wine sector, however, uh, and I believe I, I, I can say the wine sector is a good example on that in many places, not everywhere, but in many places it is, there has been always, and most especially in the last uh, 40, 50 years, a great um, synergy between uh, research, science, scientists, and practitioners. Hmm. Okay, So to give you an example, the Douro Valley in, in Portugal, where we produce port and, uh, and Douro wines, 40, 42 years ago, created an organization fully funded by uh, private companies with the sole 
goal of bringing the most modern technical and scientific knowledge translated in a way that can be used to fa by farmers. Mm -hmm. And so they have for 40 years, they have been working in this organization with farmers to help them understand what they are doing, how they can do it better, how, can they, how, the, how they can implement in their farms the most updated scientific knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that has been a driver for permanent, I wouldn't say change, but per permanent updating Yes. of practices as a function of scientific knowledge. And it's been quite quite successful in, in, in that. My company um, today, uh, we have a, an, an internal program where we send to our suppliers um, every month a list of uh, technical works, not scientific, but technical works deriving from other scientific publications, but written in a much more accessible way, mm. adapted to the type of supply they give us. So in this way, we are um, giving capacity to our supply chain to keep on improving what they do. <laughs> and it's a win-win situation because they'll be yeah. uh, supplying us what we need to have. And uh, in return, they will uh, keep having uh, a healthy business uh, mm. with us and other competitors, everybody around us. So this is not something that we do to gain competitive advantage. We do this to gain an, a, a raised baseline in order to, to, to do what we should do for sustainability, for gaining resilience and so on. There's a couple of things in there. So one is, is that you kind of like, you're talking about upping the baseline by collaborating, by educating, mm -hmm. by helping yeah. all of you as a system kind of improve, stay open, be curious about how we can change um, for the better. But then I also wonder, in terms of behaviour change at a larger level, policy is something that I know that you have to encounter that requires attention in order to make larger changes possible. What are your thoughts around how policy can be used to create more healthy ecosystems through the lens of viticulture or perhaps more broadly? Uh, that's a very easy uh, answer, <laughs> by basing policy in science. Uh -huh. that, that is uh, the main point. Uh, and when I say in science, I do not mean to say that science holds all the truth at all the times. But science has something in terms of knowledge that is repeatable and de demonstrable. Yes. At the same time, it is part of science to know the knowns, but also to know the unknowns. So the, the identification and measurement of uncertainty is also part of science. So we do not just have information on what is known. We also have information on the limits of what is known. That provides a decision maker or a policy maker with the capacity to make a decision fully aware that there is a probability that he is right and there is a probability that he is wrong. Yeah. And so he can choose which of the options will give him the highest probability of getting it right. But unfortunately, what we see most of the time is that the majority of policymaking is done uh, without any consideration for science. That is a problem. That is something I work hard every day in order to, to change. Uh, it's an uphill battle, mm. but we are making some progress. And I think that's, 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 that's really good, actually. For example, um, what uh, was uh, agreed by the end of last year in Montreal with the, the new Global Biodiversity Framework of the United Nations Convention for Biodiversity is a good example of that because those were decisions made based on existing, sound, high-quality science across the world. And I think that was a watershed moment. And how much do you think there is, maybe let me reframe this, because obviously there's the kind of going where the science is pointing, but then also there are so many vested interests in not taking approaches that are going to reduce our dependence on mm industries that are going to, you know, increase yield in the short term, but destroy rivers and all the rest of it. So how do we go about also changing incentives 
because we're talking about systemic change and obviously these things take yeah. time. Have you seen examples yeah. where people have been able to influence leaders to shift their incentives and to align with the science to be able to make the changes required for a healthier planet? Absolutely. Let me go back again to this uh, meeting in December in Montreal. That was a very, very good example of that because um, there was a big push by a large number of companies across the world uh, towards the negotiators there in order to have higher ambition hmm. in terms of, the, of the, the policies that they were agreeing with. Namely, ambition in um, making it mandatory for companies to disclose <laughs> their impacts and their dependencies on nature. Because only by this transparency can we, as a whole, ensure that um, we won't have a loss of what is the base of our business. We have a business based on nature. Mm. If we don't have nature, we don't have business. There's, there's an organization uh, I work with who has a, a very good catchphrase, which is, there is no business in a dead planet. Yeah, yeah. Any kind of business. And this was the message that uh, these um, 700 companies took to Montreal in the last December and told negotiators, and actually negotiators changed their stance and in incorporated in the final uh, text of the agreement things like uh, the disclosure of dependencies and impacts on nature, mm -hmm. but also things like the repurposing of environmentally harmful subsidies. Hmm which, as we know, is one of the major factors destroying nature today. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there, are, uh, uh, there is a role for, for the private sector to work towards improving the situation and assisting policymakers in passing the right policies to do just that. <laughs> so something else that I'm excited to ask you about, which is not kind of on the same scale, but um, you've talked about it when we met on the Camino, uh, is the biodiversity trail that you have around the vineyard in Porto. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because that that sounds just very inspiring and exciting. Um, can you share what that is? Yeah, <laughs> it's again the result of years of research and studies. So we have done that. Uh, this, this trail is set in a vineyard in the center of the Douro Valley, a place where for the last 20 years we have done a number of very interesting uh, studies uh, on um, on biodiversity. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you recall, like 12 years ago, there was a campaign in Britain about protecting pollinators. It was called Operation Pollinator. It was bringing, it started with bringing bumblebees to British farms and then it extended onto a wider understanding of important pollinators and fostering their presence in, um, in uh, British farms. We have done a replication of that uh, back in 2009, 2010 in this property. Uh, and we have um, understood, even though uh, pollinators are not really important for the grapevine itself because it's a self-pollinating uh, variety because it has uh, female and male organs in each flower. Oh. Um, <laughs> pollinators are, however, very important in making sure we have na a natural um, renewal of wild species of uh, herbs, uh, grasses, bushes in the space where we farm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we understood that fostering the presence of those pollinators there was actually very important to our uh, um, crop and, uh, and, our, and our production mm -hmm. in there. So this is just one example. We have others. We compared, for example, the biodiversity in the landscape of the Douro Valley to the, uh, the biodiversity in the landscape in other wine regions across Europe, in, in uh, uh, Loire Valley, in Bordeaux, in uh, Rioja, in Spain, in Italy. Um, and we understood that because of the characteristics of the Douro Valley being a mountain uh, wine region set in the place where it is with the specific climate it's got, it's actually a haven for biodiversity. It's one of mm. the most biodiverse wine regions in Europe. <laughs> and so accumulating all this knowledge, it suddenly dawned on us that uh, this was not just important in order to manage sustainably our farm. It was also very important to 
raise awareness mm. within consumers that a well-managed, sustainable vineyard can actually be something that uh, provides a sense of, uh, of knowing and a sense of doing the right thing when you buy a wine coming from that place. Mm -hmm. So we have a visitor center on that, uh, that uh, uh, farm and uh, we decided to create a one kilometer, well, almost one mile a uh, uh, trail around the vineyards with signs explaining what is happening at each place in terms of uh, how are we keeping and conserving biodiversity and how is that biodiversity working for us mm -hmm. and for, for the, the, the grapes and wines we produce there. At the same time, we wanted to make it very interactive. So the tour is self-guided. We don't have a guide to go with people. So they go alone. They take the time they want. Um, they will have all these panels with information as they go along uh, along the way. And in the panels, they are uh, challenged to interact, <laughs> to touch, to smell, to look, to hear. So it's the birds, it's the insects. Yeah, every, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. It's a multisensory uh, experience. And then in the end of the trail, they come to our cellar door. And if they want, they can taste the wines we produce there. And we close the circle mm. by doing that. Because they have been, as you were saying, having this multisensory experience of place, of the landscape. Yeah. And then they drink it. <laughs> And they savor the landscape mm. and they get the memory and they go back to their homes and they will never forget that. And next time they see a bottle of that region, they will remember and remember that in that place, people are taking care of nature. And so they can also participate on that by uh, choosing for their uh, consumption of wine from that place. I love that. There's something also about the, the phrase that's coming to mind is slowing down to smell the roses or stopping to smell the roses yeah. and about the fact that it is multisensory and that it is going on a walk and it's about tuning into the life that's around you and under your feet. And one of the things that I know that we've chatted about in the past and it would be nice to weave it in here is around the role of technology across the full range for, for, for good all the way over for bad mm -hmm. and how in some instances it can be used to be extraordinarily beneficial and to gather data and to learn and to change our, our approaches and adapt. And on the flip side, it feels to me that there's this mass acceleration of, I don't really want to use the word progress because I think progress isn't just getting faster and better. It's kind of talking about yes. optimising, but for, to what end? And I wonder what you think about the ways in which technology are being used to create this cultural acceleration so that we're so busy and fragmented and you mentioned the word bewilderment at the head of our conversation that that it can be quite hard to stop or slow down enough to reconnect as you've described in the vineyard or even with our local you know local park or the plants in our in our apartment or house yeah what thoughts do you have about that sort of acceleration technology well i guess that is perhaps uh, our our generation greatest challenge because uh, we are now educating younger generations uh, to a level of speed that the human mind can hardly uh, go uh, with. Yeah, we can't keep and up. The, yeah, mm -hmm. the number of threats uh, that can come out of that is just mind-boggling because the, the 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 natural tendency will be to say, well, if I can't keep up, let's just let it happen yeah and see what comes yeah okay and that can be uh, very dangerous um my generation um i'm i'm getting 57 now so i am a gen x my generation has seen it happening um i'm from the a time in my country in, in, in portugal that where as a teenager i felt bored <laughs> And one of the most scary things I see today with younger people, I have a 24-year-old daughter, I have seen it with her many times, is that they never feel bored. Mm. They feel overwhelmed. They feel anxious. But they don't feel bored. They mm. have no time to feel bored. They, the number of solicitations, the number of opportunities is just impossible to manage, especially if you are a curious people and you want to try as much as you can. 
And that is mostly, most surely, one of the greatest drivers of anxiety mm -hmm. in this younger generation. So in, uh, when I was uh, on my 16, 17 years old, we had two channels in our TV, and they would be on between 5 p.m. and midnight. Wow. So we had plenty of time to do other <laughs> stuff and plenty of time to get bored. I don't have time to be bored anymore. I, I hardly have time today to cope, not just with what I have to do professionally, mm -hmm. but also with everything I have to do in my spare time. Yeah. Because I want to do so many things. Yeah. <laughs> and I have the possibility, uh, the affordability and, um, and the interest to do them. Mm. And uh, being a person who is very curious, I abhor the idea of letting go of something that I will never experience. Yeah. But I'm coming to terms that uh, I, uh, there will be more and more things. I will never have the time or the, or, or, or the possibility or the priority to experience mm. because it's just too much. Mm. Okay, so... This is me who came from one, one situation to, to another. People who are born in the, into this situation, you could expect them to be more adapted. Like when we say that um, digital born people are more uh, open and, uh, and uh, more intuitive towards technology than people who were born before uh, the digital uh, age. <laughs> However, I'm not seeing that, and uh, everything I am reading doesn't point towards the, the the situation where this younger generation is better prepared, better equipped to deal with this immensity of solicitations and with the speed to which they have to to choose what to do at um, at each moment. Yeah. So how how do we solve this? Uh, I don't know. Be, to, to 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 be honest, this is one of the things I wish I knew. Um, the thing is, every time we inch closer to a stable situation, we are overcome by, by developments. And there are a number of things that come that uh, uh, didn't exist before. And we are, again, even far, farther behind than mm. we were in the first place. So it's a challenge. It's, it's a challenge. difficult. It's tricky. I was I thinking about this increasingly, the sense of what what it feels like to be in a system that is so restless that you can't keep up with it. It's not operating at human speed. It's operating at technological speed, which is ever, you know, it's accelerating ever more rapidly. Yeah. And what what could an antidote to that look like? And I think for me, it's as simple and as difficult as, for instance, time boxing a period of however, it could be weeks, it could be days, it could be a question of hours, where we know that for that period of time, we can dive into an activity that is not mediated by any form of, um, let's say, electrical technology. I'm, obviously, I'm thinking here more yeah. about computers and, and phones and stuff. But for instance, going for a walk or being in community or you mentioned sitting around the table with your family on a Sunday. Sure. And for folks who are not born into religious contexts where there are more of these rituals and rhythms that exist as part of the kind of the, the, the fabric of daily life or monthly life where there are cycles of, of ritual and ceremony, it can be quite hard to A, realise that you have that possibility to say, okay, well, maybe I'm not, you know, Christian and I'm not going to do a Sunday dinner with my family or I'm not Jewish and I'm not going to have a Shabbat. But there are wisdom traditions that we can turn to and say, well, how did people do this before and bake that in somehow into our lives in a way that cultivates belonging and that unhooks us from this perpetual wheel of quote-unquote progress? Because I think without that, without the possibility to feel into what's beneath the restlessness, the anxiety, how are we possibly going to form meaningful sense of resilience or connection or, or self in relationship to the wider web? Because we're just so atomized. Uh, I, I agree with that. However, um, it still doesn't stop you from having to accept that you will not have things that you would like very much to yeah. have. Uh, you have to give something up. There's that kind of compromise. Yeah, you, have to get, you have to give uh, stuff up. Mm -hmm. And that brings a big risk uh, for younger people of radicalization. Hmm. Because, um, as you were saying, um, it requires uh, human interaction. You can very difficult. It will be very difficult for uh, people to do this on their own, alone. Yes, they require a group, and this is where 
uh, radical ideas can take ground and actually subvert the person from a situation where they felt at a complete loss hmm. to a situation that in order to feel they belong, they will accept notions and ideas yeah. that they wouldn't otherwise. This is the ground for extremism and this is the ground for radicalization. Hmm. So um, I, I think that socially we would require an evolution in terms of accepting that this is a reality and finding ways of coping with that reality within the realm of our own mainstream <laughs> groups, uh, social groups, on family-based societies through the family uh, or other societal types uh, with the, the, base, the base groups that are the units of, mm. uh, of, their, of their societies. Uh, this is, of course, easier said than, than done, but it's not impossible. You mentioned, for example, Sunday lunches uh, uh, that I, I refer to with my family. Uh, with, with, uh, when we have this today, we have uh, young kids there at uh, between 6, 10, 12. Mm -hmm. And of course, we don't want them, uh, we grown-ups, we don't want them to be at the table with their cell phones or yeah. with their uh, uh, Game Boys and other type of in, screens or, or, or whatever. And the result is that, of course, they will obey us because they have no other chance, but they will be miserable for the, the whole process. It's not doing what it is, uh, what it is mm. meant to do for them. It's not creating on them the, 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 the well-being of being in a group to which they belong. For them, yeah. they are undergoing a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. You know? So uh, realizing this, we tried in my family to uh, have a kind of uh, mixed situation where we uh, allow at some moments during the meal, to, for example, in the... In, in the immediate first minutes or in uh, at, after dessert to be with their screens if they want to, but at the same time try to interest them in what we are talking about mm. and not just talk about uh, grown-up stuff. Yeah. Also engage with them mm. to ask them about their friends, about, about school, how things are, are going. Or if we find something that uh, interests them, try to pull that thread and, uh, and have them talk about it. It doesn't work all the time. <laughs> I have to be honest. Uh, it doesn't. But when it works, it's, 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 it's fun. Mm. It's fun. And it provides then the experience in them of that being something that's accessible, yeah. that they've, they've had experiences in their childhood of sitting around the table, of being yeah. engaged with other people. Um, so I realise we're coming quite close to time for this part of our conversation. And I'd love to close with two questions. The first okay. is when things get difficult or overwhelming, how do you orient yourself towards life and beauty on, on dark days? Well, I have my, my own tool for that. Uh, I have the, the chance of living near the Atlantic Ocean. So what does it for me is uh, getting out of my office earlier than usual, driving to the coast and uh, getting out of the car, sitting in the sand or in a rock, just contemplating the sunset. And uh, it works for me all the time because uh, the beauty of it, mm. I mean, if I am allowed the benefit of having, of experiencing that beauty, then I have to be loved by someone. Mm. And it integrates me. That is a really moving answer. Yeah. And finally, a much more mundane <laughs> question following <laughs> that, which feels like a bit of a clunk. Um, if people want to find out more about your work, the business that you're, that you're working with, the biodiversity tour, the vineyards, where are the best places for them to go find you? Well, I would recommend LinkedIn. I am on that on that network. I do post. I mean, not every day, but I do post uh, with some frequency to, uh, on what is going on uh, in LinkedIn. If you want, if they want to get some more detailed information, they can always go to my company's webpage. I have a space there dedicated to research and development, where all our projects and results are um, are showcased and uh, and demonstrated. So that would be uh, www 
sogrape, S-O-G-R-A-P-E, dot com. C-O-M. And then just look for the research area and the detail is there. But the easiest way would be LinkedIn. Wonderful. Thank you. It's been such a joyful and wide-ranging conversation. Thank you. I mean, you you, you really picked my, my brain. <laughs> it was fun. Thank you, Natalie. Well, folks, that's a wrap. I've really loved putting this season together, and I hope you found our exploration into how we might reimagine our role and narrative at this unusual moment as thought-provoking and inspiring as I have. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen, and leave a rating and review. It means the world to me to read your support, and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording, and producing each episode. We'll be taking a short break while we record season 12, and the podcast will be back in the winter with another set of stimulating conversations for you to dive into. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and you can follow me on LinkedIn and Instagram at natalinahai. As always, my heartfelt thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next season.